0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Moradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today are Michael Kaufman, who heads the Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security, and Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners. They're joining us today to discuss Russia and what to look forward to in the week ahead, uh, a segment that Byron does for us every single week. Uh, Byron, welcome back. Michael, always great to have you back on the program as well. Great to be back, Vago.
1: Yeah, thanks for
0: having me back on your show. Uh, Always a pleasure, Michael, and congratulations on uh, your 10 of 10 Room Raider uh, rating. Maybe we can get a chance uh, to talk about that, obviously, on Twitter. uh, In the Zoom age, they rated you and you nailed it. Uh, Whether it was, uh, you know, the round thing in the background for anybody who didn't know was a Viking shield. Uh, There's also an axe up there, Right. Yeah, I, a lot of interesting responses about the
1: kind of Picard painting I have on the wall. Got some emails from uh, couples arguing
0: as to what it really is, but, um,
1: but it was Patrick Stewart. I'll say it is Patrick
0: much. Stewart, and we'll get to the story behind that uh, at the very end. Um, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Our coverage of the recent Surface Navy Association's annual symposium was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries. Check out our coverage and our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who took their weekly podcast daily. Uh, Check it out. And also check out the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. And I apologize if you hear noise in the background. There is a wood chipper that's going on, and unfortunately... I can't stop the wood chipper and I can't move this interview. So guys, thanks very much again for joining us. Michael, uh, this is the Super Bowl. If you're uh, a Russia analyst, obviously there's a lot going on. Uh, taking a page uh, from his Soviet predecessor, Sergei Lavrov, has staked out a sort of an absurd position from which to make maximal, maximalist uh, demands uh, so far. And, and Washington and Europe are negotiating a bit on, on Russia tr- tr- uh, Russia's terms. As Moscow increases its troop presence all around uh, and inside Ukraine, State Department yesterday issued a warning ordering families of U.S. diplomatic personnel as well as Americans in the country to leave. Uh, Byron puts the risk of invasion at 70% now. He's been tracking this consistently. Where are we and where are we going?
1: I think that we're very likely heading to a renewed war between Russia and Ukraine. I mean, I've been pessimistic about this all along, going back to pretty early in November. And to me, the signs sort of point to uh, to not Russia, maybe not necessarily having decided to do it, but having been leaning towards a military option the whole time. I don't see a there there to diplomatic negotiations. I always saw the diplomatic negotiations as kind of improvised effort to stall for time and to build a narrative that would help justify the invasion. I mean, I think for sure they, they wanted to see what they could get, but let's be frank. These proposals are non-starters, are not willing to unbundle them. There's no real negotiation, just exploratory talks, and we basically said no. And to be perfectly honest, when you look at Russian treaties and their demands, they kind of read like the sort of thing that they would write if they just wanted to troll us much more than if they actually want a serious negotiating position on something. So my view of it is that most likely there will be a renewed conflict in the I think in the coming weeks. I think we're past the period of strategic warning now, and we're not looking at months, but uh, at a military operation that could that could happen in the near uh, near future. Um, I'm of course, i certain of anything. I often debate this with myself. I think any analyst looking at the at the indicators would, but it's definitely looking much more likely than not.
0: And and what form? does that operation uh, take, right? I mean, there's a lot of debate and discussion. Uh, British uh, intelligence and American intelligence uh, have pretty much come out saying something pretty extraordinary that, you know, they think that Moscow's end game is to install uh, a puppet, get rid of the Zelensky uh, government, Uh, all sorts of discussions on what form uh, this uh, could take. What form do you think the Russian incursion takes? And is it all the way to Kiev?
1: Yeah, it's a good debate. Or well, does it stop I, I, at
0: the Dnieper, which which a lot of people think uh, will will be the case?
1: Yeah, fun fact: half of Kiev is on the other side of Dnieper. I'm originally from Kiev, so uh, for people who don't know. <laughs> Kiev actually is bisected
0: <laughs> by the river, so so if you're saying uh, so I, that was that was a that was a very easy cue uh, up for you, uh, Michael. So, <laughs> yes. work, work people through the geography and, yeah. and what yeah. you think ultimately happens. Yeah, Excellent. I've actually... it, it was a softball and you swung for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's actually part of the world I know I know a little bit about. And, uh, and, and, and stopping at the Dipper could still involve going for Kiev. They're not exclusive just because of the geography. But the, the point I'd make is that um, first, you know, if you look at military options, most of the smaller, lesser ones don't make a lot of sense because there's no valid political objective tool. I don't believe in a military analysis approach where people just sort of list uh, the things that Russia can do. With the current Russian force posture um, the way it is, you can infinitely generate scenarios and it's kind of pointless as an intellectual exercise. The big question is what sort of operation will achieve Russian political aims, right? And if you're sort of thinking about 2014, 2015, the failure of those uh, military offensives to to compel Ukraine into into agreeing to Russian preferences because Minsk one and Minsk two are, are agreements signed at gunpoint, but never implemented, right? So basically what the Russians figured out is that they can get Ukrainians to sign whatever they want, but not to actually do it, which is the part that matters more, right? Um, and, and, and I don't think there's any Russian intent to conduct another offensive just to punish Ukraine or to get them to sign a new agreement. Like nobody in Moscow believes that getting Ukraine to sign a Minsk-3 is a solution to the problem just because they don't think anybody in Ukraine is going to fall through because it would be political suicide for Ukrainian political administration to fall through an agreement like that, right? And you can get politicians to do a lot of things except for commit political suicide. That's a pretty fair argument. Um, so uh, what, I, what I think is likely going to happen is they are either going to have a large-scale military operation and they're going to encircle Kiev and look to install a pro-Russian regime there, and they have a lot of tie-ins with elites in Ukraine. So if you think that they can't find a constellation of elites or oligarchs to support setting up uh, essentially a pro-Russian government or a puppet regime, you're very wrong, Uh, they can. Or alternatively, that doesn't work to partition Ukraine. And I think a lot of their risk and cost calculus does depend, as you suggested, on whether or not they largely stay east of the Dnieper River right, not excluding Kiev, but largely stay east of it or, or if they're more ambitious. But a military operation of the scale with this much risk and amounts of costs they will pay for sure in sanctions has to have maximalist political aim. So the story of Russia will conduct some airstrikes or do a limited incursion makes no sense. It's not going to achieve any elastic political gains. If they seize more of the Donbass and the annex that they actually be doing in some ways us and everybody else a favor because they're going to kill the rest of their influence in Ukraine and it'll solve Ukraine's ongoing territorial dispute. Uh, and so that, that's that's an answer to a question not being asked in terms of Russian strategy, right? The whole point was to leverage the Donbass to secure Russian influence over Ukraine and that strategy's failed. And everybody in Moscow acknowledges failed. Putin's written as much last year because no chance is going to repeat the same thing They he already knows doesn't work. So that's kind of my view of it. We're kind of limited to a number of scenarios that only make sense for Russia. And they're going to, if they're going to go through with it, they're going to go through with a large military operation that ends in a way by which they can actually enforce their preferences, which means we are talking about occupation of some part of Ukraine for some period of time.
0: So what does this tell us about the nature of uh, deterrence, right? I mean, Secretary of State uh, Blinken is getting high marks for, again, not negotiating that which should not be negotiated, making it clear that the world is watching. So a change in borders in uh, Russia, you know, means that the Chinese are watching as well on on, on what uh, you know that Mike should never make uh, right. But ultimately, it's also clear nothing we're doing is deterring the Russians, right? It's not like the fear of sanctions is not sufficient to deter them him. Uh, and ultimately, Russia tends to adapt really, really well to sanctions, ultimately, even if the ruble now is is plunging and there are, there are other, uh, you know, what, what does this tell us about how we need to think about deterrence going forward, given that we're doing a lot of after the fact? I mean, indeed, if we transfer U.S. forces uh, to Europe, Putin actually wins in helping she put another crisis, another burden on U.S. military forces that could get freed up and, for example, be used uh, in, in Asia. How, how do we need to change how we're thinking about deterrence when we're not doing anything that's really deterring Vladimir Putin from doing anything he wants, whether that anything he wants is in Armenia, whether it's in Belarus, uh, whether it's in Ukraine, or in Kazakhstan, or anywhere else?
1: Uh, I've been around this town for a long time. The true meaning of deterrence is... is... Uh, Word to be abused by DC policy community to mean whatever people want to, want to mean in, in policy perspective arguments. So, about 80% of the time people use deterrence, they mean defense, and the other 20% of the time they usually mean compounds. That's basically what I find in DC. Um,
0: well, I mean, right. And the Russians <laughs> are taking advantage of our, um, you know, since the Cold War, since the nuclear era, we want to avoid crisis and conflict. And that becomes the default setting. And in fact, it's because that crisis means pain somehow, right? So we want to err toward negotiations so as not to inflict pain, right? That we can talk sense into somebody unless you can't talk sense into somebody, right? I mean, so how do we need to change how we're thinking about this problem because the Chinese are watching this as well?
1: Yeah, so to me, this is all a pretty classic case, all right? Um, you know, first we have the basic issue of, uh, Interested stakes, which is we signal clearly that Europe is a secondary theater and Ukraine's a secondary interest within that theater that makes it very close to peripheral, right? So our interest at stake are a lot lower than Russians. That's very obvious. Part two, Russia has most of the means to use military power that needs to compel Ukraine, and we are not going to go war Russia over Ukraine. That's very obvious. So our deterrence options really cut us down to deterrence by punishment. the question is, what can we do to punish Russia? Well, economic sanctions. Well, that's about the least effective form of deterrence by punishment available. So everything here is working out as expected. That is, you don't expect sanctions to actually deter any country using force over vital interests. You wouldn't expect that to work. So if it doesn't work, you shouldn't be surprised. Uh, But, Michael, the outcome's not yet determined, right? I don't know why people are yelling deterrence has failed. Why don't we wait to see what happens? But uh, in general, you know, I think the US has made the best case it can. I, th- I think the big problem is, is like people in Washington just struggle, struggle to accept that the United States has too many stakes out there, too much credibility attached to areas where there's pretty low interest at stake or not enough means to, to actually uh, credibly defend them. And strategy is about prioritization, right? It is strategy is not you, you can't do everything at the same time. So we're kind of seeing this play out and um, I mean, I, I, in some ways, I think it's unfortunate, but I, I think the United States is, is 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 also realizing and feeling the li- the limits of our power and what we can do, and our focus is naturally on U.S. allies. But you know, for all limitations, I I actually expect this could be a pretty serious strategic misstep for Russia. You know, that history is uncertain; it's highly contingent. But I don't. I, I always think of it this way, Vago. Great powers are their own worst enemies. Typically, you know, you kind of think in history that great powers get destroyed in great power wars, but that's not really true. It's the strategic mistakes they they make in the run up to that, uh, and, and those are more uh, finishing events. As to say, it's great powers usually undo themselves, and uh, I think we have to be careful looking at our own strategy. This is where I think you thoughtfully bring in China. You know, the, the obvious lesson from this looking forward is when people say, well, the United States will will then make these huge force posture shifts in Europe and this, that and other. Yeah, we'll make some. We're a one theater military and our strategic focus is China. So Europeans sitting back thinking that the United States is going to suddenly reorient itself back to Europe if there's a war between Russia and Ukraine are going to have a sober awakening. Um, we're actually pretty much very much looking forward to see their increase in defense spending and what they're going to do. But the United States can't, the United States is increasingly facing its material constraints, I think. And, and uh, it's going to be a real challenge for US strategy for trying to fix the, the eroding military balance vis a vis China and Asia Pacific. Europe is very much unstable as well. And, and we're going to find ourselves pressured to, to bring back forces there. We can bring some on the cheap, obviously, like, like army and the like. But, but in general, we are facing real constraints to US power.
0: Uh, Byron, I want to bring you in the conversation, because as we were preparing for this, you know, another thoughtful uh, look-ahead uh, note, uh, you've been following uh, Michael's uh, work uh, closely, and we've discussed that on the program over the last couple of months uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine. Your, your focus also is on the ruble and where the ruble is going. What, what do you think is interesting about where we are, where we're going, and what it tells the rest of the world? Because I think Michael makes a good point, right? the Russians are going to do whatever the Russians are going to do, even though we don't want to be causes belli, uh, right? We don't want to impose sanctions as Zelensky called for in advance of uh, anything happening, because we don't want to be blamed for precipitating it, right? That's the typical um, US adult in the room uh, prudence. Uh, On the other hand, it also suggests that we're not changing their vector at all. What's, what's your sense, especially the financial dimension of this? and what does that mean? And Michael, want to get your sense on, on you know, look, I, I, I think we pride ourselves sometimes in looking at the strategic missteps of, of great powers and think of them as, wow, you know, Pearl Harbor, what a brilliant stroke as opposed to, my God, that was so stupid. Oh, and by the way, you also did it stupidly. You didn't destroy the tank farms, you didn't take out the carriers, you didn't take out the submarines. So all of a sudden, you know, we sort of knew how that was going to end eventually. What's your sense on on, on where we are and what this could mean, not just for Russia financially, but for financial markets more broadly?
2: Well, let me take it in two different directions, because I think the first thing you have to start with is what's the consensus about what's really going on here? And there are not a lot of good market measures on this. You can look at how markets are behaving. Uh, I mean, clearly, this is starting to, you know, get the uh, strong attention of financial markets. Some indices, just to throw out the five-day changes, Uh, the the MOEX, which is the kind of the Russian stock market index, it's equivalent to the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones um, Industrial Average. That's down 9% in the last five days. Um, Russian, uh, the credit default swaps on Russian sovereign debt have just been blowing out. you know, November 10th, which is kind of one date that I benchmark against this, because that's really when you start to see the intelligence warnings made public that um, there was an unusual Russian military buildup taking place uh, near Ukraine. Um, Those credit default swaps are up 202%. Um, They're up 27% uh, over the past five days. So, you know, There are concerns about will Russia be able to pay uh, on its sovereign debt? Will will parts of that be sanctioned, for example? Um, The other interesting indicator to me is how defense stocks are performing in the market. And you're seeing both outperformance in Europe. Uh, Companies like Leonardo, BAE Systems, Rheinmetall uh, are are outperforming the broad market indices in, in, uh, in Europe. Uh, They're actually up year to date when you've now got probably 7 to 8% declines in things like the S&P 500, the S&P 350 for Europe. And in the U.S. market, you're seeing uh, Lockheed Martin, L3 Harris, uh, some of the the U.S. defense peer plays also outperforming the market. So, you know, as much as in the U.S. there's kind of this this narrative that, oh, the markets are concerned about uh, the Fed and interest rates and inflation you are starting to see this creep more into uh, metrics in which there is concern about about uh, a military conflict taking place. And I would agree with Michael's assertion, You know, kind of February, maybe March at the very latest, but uh, I think something at scale, that's probably the most likely time when this will happen. Now, the other question is, is the market fully discounted this? And I would say, no, uh, there are a whole range of scenarios and expectations you have to start playing with. You know, how well, what's the scope of a Russian operation? How well will their forces uh, perform as well as the Ukrainian forces? What are the lessons that countries are going to start, militaries and other countries start to learn from a, a conflict in um, at scale in Ukraine? And then to Michael's point, you know, are the Europeans actually going to start to increase their defense spending, you know, on the same vector path, maybe even a, a stronger vector path that we saw since 2014, 2015? And I think you know there will be re- re- reverberations in Asia as well too. Um, you know how will this bear on Japan's, Taiwan's, uh, the Republic of Korea's defense spending expectations if they think the U.S. really is going to be more constrained and, and spread thinner as a result of what happens? I mean, I just don't think it's realistic to expect that we are going to abandon Europe. And think, uh, you know, just focus entirely on Indo-Pacific. We're going to be spread thinner. And and I think other countries are going to react to that.
0: I uh, want to uh, commend, uh, again, Kaja Kalas, uh, the uh, Estonian prime minister, talking about, uh, I, I suggest uh, going to the uh, err.ee website and checking out her piece, because I think it's uh, fascinating. And she talks about Andre Gromyko's three rules, and you know, let's bear that in mind as we go through this uh, period, um, but also calls for doing more, right, investing more uh, in uh, security from an Estonian uh, perspective, but it's not particularly clear whether... Whether that's going to happen elsewhere uh, in Europe. Michael, what are the um, financial implications on Russia, right? I mean, uh, Byron discussed the ruble uh, and Russian sovereign debt tanking. Um, it, is that something that will be motivating Putin? Uh, and Putin also has a tendency of having all manner of hedging strategies, uh, ultimately.
1: There are clear economic costs already for Russia for dragging us out. And given the number of weapons we've sent to Ukraine, there are obvious policy costs as well. So people think that Putin is sort of bluffing, and he's trying to see what he can get. He's clearly past the period of diminishing returns in uh, this game of course of bargaining, and the costs are mounting. So what is he waiting for? The most logical answer is he actually doesn't intend to conduct a large military invasion, and he's priced his costs in. Because if he doesn't, then he's a fool, and he should have taken the offer that was on the table. From the United States in the last two weeks right? because you already see the Russian central bank having to step in. Um, but let's talk about the big picture. We have uh, probably a Russian assumption that they're in the much best economic shape from a macroeconomic perspective that's from a state perspective, not from a real economy perspective in, since 2014. They've got a decent amount of reserves. They've stabilized the economy. Uh, they have a lot of measures in place in the event we do certain things to them uh, in terms of public real incomes that picture all looks bad but that's not what the regime cares about right and, and historically has not cared that much about it so my sense is they think that they're in a decent material position to pick this fight now that they have several years of runway to absorb the damage u.s will inflict economically to them that they can withstand it and that a lot of those measures be temporary all right third part of it they have you know we're, not to complicate things, but we're rapidly going from deterring Russia to what's called intra-war deterrence or escalation management. That is now we're now we're in it in a crisis, and they have their own plan for how they're going to deter the United States from doing some of the things we threaten to do. Right? Um, first, they're kind of assuming that the worst measures that we threaten with are are potentially going to be really disruptive and backfire, and we might be self-deterred from doing. Them. I'm not talking about SWIFT or Ennis too. 2 To me, these are like real distractions, huge distractions, Nord Stream 2 and SWIFT. They're not that relevant to this conversation. A lot of people fixate on them. You know, the real Russian concerns, of course, that we take main Russian banks, like Spare Bank, we we'll unilaterally add them to the SDN list, right? We sanction them, and this is going to have major effects on the Russian economy. It could make the Russian economy potentially a basket case. It would be hard for them to recover. It's not Iran-level sanctions, but nonetheless, very significant. So, what are they thinking? Because you can't really price something like that in very well. they probably think it are going to be self-deterred because they understand that if we fire an economic weapon that large, it'll have uh, disruptive effects on the global financial system. It'll have particular, particularly negative effects on commodity prices, both on gas prices for Europe and, and on the oil prices potentially too, which Vago here does matter because it directly affects, you know, gasoline price, right? And and we're, we're actually not in a place on our economy in terms of commodity prices and things like that, where a substantial disruption resulting from our sanctions that increases commodity prices or gasoline prices would be very welcome because those things tend to have domestic political consequences if you, if you kind of get my implication. So point being is that I think part of the Russian bet is that we're not going to do some of the worst things we're threatening to do because they will have consequences for our own uh, our own economy, our own political system, and particularly for Europeans as well. And Europeans won't be on board with them and will try to discourage us from doing it. And another part of their bet is that if we do use these strategic economic measures, they can't reply economically, but they can potentially reply militarily. And then we're going to get a real crisis in Europe. That is, that is, they will escalate this to things beyond Ukraine They have, have a more significant standoff.
0: Where do else do they escalate? Is it in the Baltics? Is it out of Kaliningrad? And is uh, the administration has had conversations with the Qataris. Can we find easily substitutions to uh, Russian oil and gas for Europe quickly enough?
1: First, uh, I don't think there's a substitute for uh, Russian gas and oil, though the bulk of uh, the Russian export sales is really oil. That's probably, I think, something like 45% of it compared to gas in terms of value, but, but the gas export to Europe is strategically very significant. So first, I don't believe there's any easy makeup for Russian production of oil in the global economy, not that suddenly Russia's not going to be able to sell its oil, but, but that I think is I think a silly proposition. And then the other one is more about gas. And, and again, um, it, there's, there's no such thing as an easy substitute for European dependence on, on Russian gas. So it's just a question of you know, what, are, what are these countries' political systems willing to tolerate in terms of the costs and likely disruption. And uh, as I'm sure you know, Europe is kind of a bit of a gas price, gas, uh, price crisis. So Russians might feel they have considerably more leverage now this winter than previous years. Um, but at the end of the day, the United States can still go through with it. Keep in mind, for some of these sanctions, some of the worst ones, we don't need Europeans for this. That's a common misnomer. Like, we do need Europeans for SWIFT. Usually I hear things that are wrong on both ends of the equation. If people think we just disconnect Russia from SWIFT, though so that's a button that somebody has on their desk here in the United States, and we don't. Uh, it's actually it's not clear if we could do that
0: uh, and, it's playing, it, and it's playing into a russian trap seeing as how the russians have or you know what i mean people will want to trade with russia ultimately and use their alternative mechanisms. so it actually undermines uh our sense of control ultimately um yeah. where else can he militarily act out
1: uh well like i said there's there's always there's always europe and baltics and i don't mean and i don't mean something silly like Russia is going to invade the Baltics, but they could have a real military crisis. We could have a, another sort of Berlin crisis type showdown or a Cuban Missile Crisis type showdown. And they're threatening horizontal escalation that they're going to put something in Venezuela or Cuba, or what, although I think these are just, that's a cheap talk. I, I, don't, I don't think that's very serious, but I do but, but I do believe they have a, a number of options. And one of the biggest questions of all is what will China do, all right? They should have debate. So sanctions people think, oh, there's no way the Russian relationship was that for China so China is not going to help them and it will follow through with US secondary sanctions. Fascinating accountant's perspective. What, is, what if China is a strategic player and, and decides that in this particular scenario, they should take on substantial economic risk to backstop Russia in a fight with the United States because they know the strategic problem it'll put the United States into in Europe, right? What if China actually is a strategic player and isn't myopic and isn't just thinking about the bottom line. I don't know. It, it's an open-ended debate.
0: Byron, your your take on all that, and, and what do you think are some interesting little nuances of this uh, that you've been thinking about?
2: You know, I would add to Michael. I mean, I think there's a lot of focus on uh, on gas and oil to Europe. I throw in agricultural commodities here too. You know, Russia is one of the largest exporters of wheat. Um, so is Ukraine. I think Ukraine on 2020 data was the fourth largest exporter of wheat in the world. Now a lot of the Russian wheat goes through uh, and other cereals go through Black Sea ports. but just having a conflict in that area, any kind of disruption, if this extends, you know through the summer and into the fall, <laughs> is also going to have an impact on global commodity prices, particularly um, food and the UN FAO, Kind of their global food price index is already at levels uh, that we last saw around the time of the Arab Spring, so f- basic inflation and in food stuffs could have a, a pretty intriguing collateral impact on global security. Um, and you know, if you sanction Russian banks, how will that affect uh, their agricultural imports? I think that's a, their exports. That's another part of this whole puzzle. Um, I would agree. I mean, I don't. Uh, I, the SWIFT question is one I also kind of grapple with because I understand you—you do need that is something the U.S. cannot do unilaterally. You are going to need a, a consensus with the other members of SWIFT to effectively boot rush out. And I, I also agree with Nord Stream two. I think it, it's it's got a symbolism in the United States, and I just don't think it's that important as a, a real deterrent factor in this particular. Crisis or situation, and to the point on China, I think it it is a very interesting issue. um, You know how China sees it's not just tying down U.S. forces. You know you've seen the the Royal Navy take their carrier uh, to the to the Far East and into uh, up to Japan. So, you know to the extent that global Britain is going to try and play a greater role in Indo-Pacific. You know, if you start anchoring some of these European uh, militaries in that region, uh, that's also going to be something that China is going to be interested in too.
0: What do you think this does uh, to commodity prices? Right? I mean, oil is, I think, what at an eight-year high. uh, Grocery prices are going up. In fact, President Biden's uh, plunging popularity is driven in part because of inflation concerns. Right? I mean, the highest we've had in four decades. Um, What does Right. I mean, it, clearly that that's a weapon that the Russians are going to want to exploit. Right. I mean, so what's your sense on how this plays out, well, especially as we go into I, the. Know,
2: yeah. I, I think the earnings. problem, you know, if, if oil were to go to 100 or 110 or some, I, I don't know what the number will be, but, you know, there, there's a classic case where you get demand destruction. I mean, if if gasoline in the United States goes to $5 a gallon, how many people are going to be driving? at the same level. So some markets may correct for that. I think the interesting thing is, um, you know, I don't know how, what what the long-term strategic plan is to wean Europe off its dependence from Russian natural gas. Uh, you know, that's not something you're going to solve in a year or two time frame. Um, And I suppose the same thing, again, I'm, you know, by far not, uh, don't have any expertise in commodities prices and agriculture prices and how long, uh, you know, kind of a reaction t- to this all could take. But I think there will be shocks, and it's working through those price shocks uh, that, you know, people need to think more broadly about this than just what's going to happen in Ukraine and Russia. It's, it's, it's you're dropping a, a very big rock in a, in a very large pond, and that very big rock is going to ripple. Uh, throughout um, sectors and markets in ways that I think people are just starting to really think through.
0: Um, Michael, uh, let me ask, and then uh, Byron, I'm going to come to you to uh, to close out with uh, what else we should be paying attention to over the course of the coming week. Uh, we've extended this show a little bit because I think that this is a, a fascinating discussion. Uh, Michael, how do you respond to those who saw President Biden has a tendency of Sometimes saying, you know, sort of talking through what's on his mind and maybe being a little bit too candid, uh, right? His uh, repeated statements, or at least two of them on Taiwan, uh, are regarded as a way of messaging, right? Um, That we will fight for Taiwan, China, so don't miscalculate on that front. Uh, Everybody comes back and says, oh, no, no, that's not what the president meant. And uh, Byron and I are on a group and one of the thoughtful members uh, of this email group that, uh, you know, said, "Uh, look. Uh, it, you know, Biden may have been trying to give Putin an out, that Putin is sort of painting himself into a corner. And so his language about, look, if it's limited, it will not be as bad as if it's something not limited, understanding that the Russians are going to do whatever it is they want to do. Um, did How did you regard the statement by the president? I mean, was it just a flat out gaffe and a mistake? Or do you think that it was high level strategic messaging to try to mitigate what to try to turn something very bad into something maybe not as bad?
1: Uh, well, this is just one person's personal opinion because I think it's the former Vago. I think people are reading a little too much into the statement. I don't think it was that carefully crafted. I, I suspect right. the the president just worded it the way he, he worded it. And that's the problem with folks trying to derive immense strategic meaning from uh, the language. I also think that there's often a simplistic impression of uh, the interrelation of credibility across different conflicts where there are very different interests at stake and very different material capabilities or balances uh, that affect uh, the extent to which people can actually enforce their preferences, which is like an elaborate way of saying, if the United States can't deter Russia from invading Ukraine, even though we're pretty limited what we can do there, it doesn't necessarily have direct implications for our contest vis-a-vis China and Taiwan. The stakes are different for us, and our ability to affect that is very different. And our commitments to Taiwan are very different from our commitments to Ukraine. So people have a very simplistic perception of of U.S. credibility, which of course is going to drive any normal person crazy in D.C. because you have nothing but credibility arguments in this town. Uh, they just not how international politics work. Yes, yes, it's not to say that it doesn't matter, but but I just I just want to tell folks to be wary of, of drawing a direct relationship from everything to everything. You know, if the US withdraw from Afghanistan, then this or that will happen in international politics, and of course it won't. Plus, it's a pretty silly US-centric theory of international politics and in history. We're an important country, but uh, the universe does not revolve around the United States. Other countries make their decisions. Based on a host of factors and interests, and, and so we shouldn't have a, a U.S. centric monocausal theory of international politics, which you often get.
0: That was uh, that was an excellent uh, place, uh, e- excellent observation, uh, Michael Byron. What are some of the other things we should be paying attention to, and that are on your mind uh, this week as we wrap the program up?
2: Really, obviously, you know what's going on with. <laughs> with markets and uh, you know, as we talk, I think the S&P 500 is now down 3%. So uh, there's a call scheduled this afternoon with Biden and European leaders. So I, I think this is gonna come to a head fairly quickly. It's gonna be interesting because a lot of the major US defense contractors report earnings this week. Um, I don't think they're gonna have a whole lot to say, although I think about, about how Russia and Ukraine could, could impact their outlook. Um, I do think there's a very interesting question about, you know, could you flow some of the things that Romania or Poland or Sweden or Finland have ordered in the past two or three years? I'm thinking of M1 tanks, uh, you know, Patriot air defense systems, uh, F-35s, uh, to those to those countries faster. You know, can these countries, can these companies, um, do they have the capacity to, to, um, to pull that, type of kit forward and get it to those allies faster. They, they don't, you'd also have to worry about, you know, how quickly can those States ingest that equipment? Can you, can you accelerate the training of the, the individuals and the units um, that would operate that equipment? So I think that's going to be a really interesting question to ask some of these managers this week. Although I don't think they're going to have really good hard answers on it, but, um, I think this is one of these weeks where, you know, people are nitpicking about book to bill and operating margin and cash flow, you know, you really just need to step back and, and not look at those trees, but think about the broader geopolitical forest, because uh, that's really what's going drive, to drive their outlook for, for 2022 and beyond. It, it's not, you know, did you, did you make the margin by 10 basis points or did you miss it? Um, I think a lot of that, that kind of discussion is just, it's going to be irrelevant.
0: Uh, and I'm going to take uh, three things uh, from uh, your list. Atlantic Council has an event tomorrow on the 25th uh, on uh, Russia's six scenarios for a, n- a new Ukraine invasion. Chatham House holds a January 26th event, Russia's challenge to European security confrontation on the Ukraine uh, Ukrainian border, and AEI hosts uh, one also uh, tomorrow uh, on the national defense strategy. Did I about get that right? Correct. And Michael,
2: I believe you're speaking at the Atlantic Council event.
0: Yeah, I think so. Tomorrow morning. Yep. Uh, Great. Well, we'll uh, tune in for that. And uh, Michael, uh, wrap it up. Uh, People think that that is Admiral Picard on your wall, thanks to Room Raider. It is not Admiral Picard, is it?
1: No, it's Patrick Stewart, but he's sort of in the guise of a Russian general from the Napoleonic War period. But that's okay. You know, maybe people
0: will be disappointed. But But
1: it is Sir Patrick Stewart.
0: Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Vago. Always a pleasure. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell.
1: We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities
0: for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that.